Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the Unauthorized, unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater... With the normal bitcheries and qualms... By watching the video recordings... From questionable origins... Of various productions. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome back to the unauthorized. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) The fucking pianissimo one that got me. Oh my god. (laughs) Go, start. I don't trust you. (laughs) Hi everyone, welcome back. Fuck! I can imagine you pre-recording this to yourself and just pissing your pants. Oh my god! Authorized critic circle. What did we do this week? <sighs> Daniel, yesterday is done. Today we're talking about the off-Broadway production of Merrily We Roll Along at New York Theater Workshop. So we didn't see it yesterday. We did not. And we didn't. We didn't do it this week, but we're talking about it this week. Yeah, we saw it a while ago. I saw it back in January. Oh, I saw it. Um, it was for early December. We typically start these little things off by telling the audience about our day. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got to the theater and you had to go and you had to show your ID because they didn't want people counterfeiting those Daniel Radcliffe tickets. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I, I was there early and a group came and sat next to me and there was a gay guy in mid-40s. As they were walking in, they saw me and... He said, spot on impression here, by the way. For sure. He said, I'll sit next to this young gentleman. Okay, I don't want any hooping and hollering. I don't want any singing along and put away the damn phone. The man said this to you? Yes. That's remarkable. Yes. And I was like, oh no. Is this like me 20 years (laughs) in the future? Holy shit. And he turned out to be very nice, but I was like, okay, we're coming on very strong. We certainly were. Holy shit. We are coming on very strong. And then we got to talking, is this your first merrily? No, it's not. Your first merrily. Is this your first merrily? No. I've seen it once before. I've seen it like five times. Wait till you get to the blob. What a piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking love this guy. What the hell? And then when it got to the blob, he hit me like violently on my knee and said, it's here, it's here. <laughs> That's incredible. I'm very glad that you had 
a good associate for your time at Merrily. I actually also yeah. had an interesting seatmate. Okay, what happened there? So I'll say in general, I also pulled up like an hour, an hour and a half early, went over to get my ticket, walked around, found like a nearby dive bar. Mm-hmm. Can't rem- remember the name of it, but I saw it and I went, I absolutely would like to go into Merrily We Roll Along with a drink in me, actually. Went in, grabbed a drink, downed it, headed right over to the theater. I, st- I-, I got there and there was like a line. And I happened to get to the line just as soon as Jonathan Groff got there uh, with his helmet on. Which, by the way, 7.35, very much 25 minutes to curtain, this man was walking in the door. Astounding. Okay. Astounding. It, it, did he take the bike inside? No, no, he parked across the street. Okay, because there was a bike outside the theater, and I was like, is that... Croft's bike, or was he able to take it inside? Did they have room backstage? They probably didn't have room backstage. He did stay at the theater very late. He was there. I happened to pass by it again like 30, 40 minutes after the show, and he was just leaving. You stalked him? It sounds like you stalked John. Actually, Groff. no, but there were people there, like, standing and taking photos and videos of him who were waiting there for, like, 30, 40 minutes. I was walking back with a slice of pizza. <laughs> Anyhow, you and the goddamn dollar pizza. I listen, listen. I you lived and the in fucking New York City dollar for a few pizza. weeks. I lived in New York City for a few weeks in like 2021. When I tell you of those few weeks that I was there, that I spent easily 30 bucks on dollar pizza. Oh, I that shit fucking sustained me. You know yeah, what? It reminds me of the kosher pizza of my youth, and that's reason enough. Oh God. Oh Jesus. What? Go on. What? Go on. Go Sorry, on. Sorry, I didn't know you were anti-Semitic. Fuck. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm Jewish and Italian. Well, <laughs> perfect combination to be talking about dollar pizza. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, it just can't be done. Well, listen, you know what? The, the, the you so- want I, it, but it can't be done. I hope you overcome that self-loathing some, sometime. That internalized. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Anyhow, it's not self-loathing, it's Italian pride. I make it to my seat. I got a ticket in the second row, which I was awash. I was awash by Merrily. Is that because a certain actor, um... Well, uh, we'll talk about that kind of... We'll talk about that wash later. We'll talk about that wash later. I'm wearing some Stephen Sondheim shirt, and I think the the conversation was striked up by, like, the person next to me complimenting my shirt, and I was like, oh, hey, thanks very much very excited to be here. This is a very cool event, all that. And then we just like get to talking. I sort of ask them what their deal is. They're like, oh yeah, I used to, I, I, I had something to do with New York Theater Workshop at one point. I'm a Stephen Sondheim person. I was like, oh, hey, great, fun. And then they're like, hey, uh, here, you should have this. And I look at it, it's a little magnet. I'm like, oh, that's fun. And I flip it around and the magnet on it says Sondheim Letters, which I recognize from the Instagram account Sondheim Letters, which has been posting Stephen Sondheim's sort of correspondence in the year following his mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that I was sitting next to the owner of that account. Oh, how fun. Isn't that wonderful? How fun. And I immediately like, oh, wow, I love your account. I love your stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, creme de la creme of fucking Sondheim communities here. It was lovely. That was fun. Nice little, I like that we had like little seatmate adventures. Yeah, isn't that fun? Isn't, isn't that, that fun? fun? New York Theater Workshop is tiny. So wow. the first time I went, I got in because <laughs> we should say it was not an easy ticket to get this. They um, sold out in less than 10 minutes, I believe. 
Yes, I got in because I subscribed to their whole season. Right. Because it was a thing of, I think the Merrily ticket was going to be 120 and if you subscribe to every the whole season, each ticket was only going to turn out to be like 50-something. So, hey, I'll go see whatever's in the season. And I walked in for the first show. I had never been to New York Theatre Workshop before that. And I was like, oh, are they sure they're doing Merrily here? <laughs> Are they really sure? I don't know where you're gonna fit everything. I mean, true. Had you you you'd seen the Maria Friedman production before, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had seen the video. We had all seen the video. Everyone's seen the video. It's it's the most digestible way to see Merrily at this point. Um, yes. It doesn't exact like I I knew that production and hearing it was going to the New York Theater Workshop. I didn't really have a concept of how small the space was, but I was like, you could probably do that. With, like, 15 feet across if you needed to. I mean, the issue is, where are you going to put the orchestra? Well, their solution was up. Yeah. They built there was nowhere like little, to go but up. They they built, like, a little room on top of the set that all the orchestra lived in. Uh-huh. Which is a nice, nice smart solution. Let's be honest, it was crowded in there. It, it, it did feel like the set was exploding out of the theater. Yeah. That's not a bad thing, but not at all. It, it was crowded. I wasn't it sure if that worked. was just because I was in, like, the second row that I was feeling that, but it very much... I was watching that show, I was like, wow, it's in 3D. <laughs> but, you know, that's not a bad thing. Not really. I think it, it helped just is. the intimacy of it a lot. It, it, it did. Merrily We Roll Along Off-Broadway felt like one of the more significant New York theatrical events since, like, lockdowns ended. And I think that intimacy yeah. helped with that a lot. Mm-hmm. It's going to be odd seeing it in a Broadway theater. Goodness gracious, yeah. And I, the and one we, that I hear they're going for it is a rather sizable we know, one, too. We know where they're going. It's not one of the larger ones, but it's decent-sized. And we will see. Where are we going to start here? Well, there's this show. We've never talked about this show before. We've never talked about Merrily We Roll Along. Do we get historical or do we just talk about the show? Let's talk about our history with this show. I It's one of the best cast albums of all time. I had mm. seen many a bootleg of it and I had seen a concert production that was not encores, but I had seen a concert production of Merrily We Roll Along before I saw it at New York Theatre Workshop. This was my first time seeing it live as well. I was working on a production of it for a little while, and I went to go watch the York Theatre production, actually, at Toft, at the Theatre on Film and Tape Archives. I've seen two shows there in my life. It was Fences, the original Broadway cast, and it was the York Theatre production of Merrily Roll Along. That's like the blue cast album, which, pretty underwhelmed by, kind of sucked, to be completely honest. Wow. There's no reason to be negative. The, the, the production was dinky. The, ca the cast recording is stellar from that production. It's just the, the production was dinky and I didn't like it. Anyhow, I worked on the show. I'd never seen it live. This was my first time doing that. And what was your opinion of Merrily before going into this production? I'll admit, to this day, I've still never seen the original version of Merrily. 
I've never seen the video of the original production. I've listened to the cast recording. Oh, I have. And I have an idea of sort of what it was from that. But I've never actually seen anything really from the original book. You know, I think one of the first bootlegs that I, like, experienced in total was that second preview audio. Mm, I listened to where that Where it was still, uh, what's on. his name? Weisenbach. Yeah. And... Bless you. You were listening... <laughs> you were listening to it kind of going, what is this? It seemed like they were referencing themselves. Mary seemed like she was saying Joanne's lines from Company. It... Mm. Fascinating. I will say, I, I also have seen Lonnie Price's documentary. Yes, yes. Which he made the called The Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. Mm-hmm. Which is a really interesting documentary about really that entire time from the inside perspective. Mm-hmm. Has some really fascinating insights and sort of illuminates much more largely sort of why the show failed the way it did. You mm-hmm. know? Sure, it, in its original iteration, and even still to some extent, it's a pretty messy show. But watching the documentary, you understand why it was a crash and burn rather than a a, a stumble. You know? There were a lot of well, elements that people just weren't ready for. There is something to be said of people were vindictive about Sondheim at the moment. Mm-hmm. Because I think in his terms, you can be experimental and that's fine. And you can be commercially successful and that's fine. They don't like you if you're both. And we Mm. were both. And he was not always commercially successful, but he did have a couple of hits and people did not like that. And this musical ended up being the end of a decade long streak between Sondheim and Prince in which they quite literally revolutionized the Broadway musical. That lineage, Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overture, Sweeney. Mm -hmm. Those musicals very tangibly shifted the course of commercial musical theater and like landmarked a brand new era for Broadway musicals. And merely we roll along didn't live up to those and they full-on shot them down and i mean the show do you think it's a good show yes in its current iteration yes i don't think it's ever been a bad show yeah i don't think it's a bad show i think the reports of its badness have been exaggerated they they have been. It, it's always had good parts. It doesn't always totally work. It's never totally worked. But it was really... People were ready to turn on Sondheim. Yes. And the production was not what it should have been. Yeah. And in the current iteration, is it a good show? No. Is it a great show? Absolutely. Does that make sense? All right. It has moments of greatness, even if it doesn't totally work. All right. And what do you think about the current show? I think it is a messy show. And I do think it is a flawed show. Mm -hmm. There are moments in the show that I absolutely hate. Absolutely cannot stand. The end of the first scene of the show is the bane of my goddamn existence. Which ending? uh, It's the... 
Well, the one that they, the one that's now cemented, the one with Gussie throwing iodine in the eyes of Meg Kincaid, mm-hmm. which is arbitrary and unnecessary and completely an unnecessary way to end that scene beyond just shocking moment. Mm-hmm. You you can cut it and you lose nothing for it. It has no. It's mm-hmm. truly no reason to be there. There's moments yeah. like that. Well, they cut it from encores. Yeah, right? Didn't it end with just, like, Mary storming out? It ended with Mary stumbling down. Mm. Which, honestly, I think is a better ending to that scene. We could get into a whole dramaturgical conversation about how that puts the onus on it differently. But I always did think it was so stupid to end that first scene with Gussie going, like, I, I hate you and we're finished. You think you're starry-eyed? We'll see how starry-eyed she is now. As if that's the most significant thing to happen in that scene. Versus the dissolution of the 20-year friendship that he has. Uh-huh. Anyhow. Actually, that's a perfect point. Yeah. It's about Mary. It's about him breaking up with Mary, his last friendship from that era, rather than... Of course, it's him severing that last tie. It has nothing to do yeah. with Gussie and his current young girlfriend. Yeah. Anyhow. There's that that always bugs me. I always thought the sort of greenhouse scene that they do in the second act where Gussie's asking all those questions goes on a little long. The sort of... Blob. Daniel, I don't hate the blob. I kind of don't hate the blob. I don't the know how to say The blob is not good. I... The blob... I don't think Here's it's bad. the thing. It's not terrible, but it is so clearly a rewrite of a rewrite of an idea that once was. It's not, it never had the chance to actually be something on its own. There's nothing that she has that's original. And it's clearly there because the character needs a song. And it accomplishes it, and it also completely misses the mark. Fair enough. I see where you're coming from. I I, I have never skipped that song on my shuffle. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Wow. Never once. Anyhow, it's messy. It's imperfect. She's imperfect, but she tries. Well, what works is it's probably in the top two Sondheim scores. Yes, and personally... We're improvising now? What Go. I think makes this show so beautiful... And, you're, and, and this is our biggest point of contention in this musical. You might laugh when you hear me say this. Oh, no. The musical's genuine... We were going to get around to this. ...sense at some point. ...of unbridled optimism. Oh! No! No! We do not agree! <laughs> not even a little bit. We do not agree! <laughs> I think the joy and the beauty inherent to this show comes so much from the love that these characters share with each other in that second act, the beauty and the hope and the optimism in their eyes and the assurance that they're going to make the world their own, it goes wrong. But you also see why it goes wrong. And it feels like not a condemnation of the things that happen to you in your life, but rather a reminder to take stock of yourself, to, to check back in with who you are compared to who you once were, those values that you held at that point in your life, the people in your life around you, to 
check back into and it's corny as shit but it's sometimes kind of saying be true to thine own self i find it very touching we'll get to my opinion on the overall show in a second because i disagree with you to an extent i know almost totally i know what's so great about the score it's accessible which is not a common thing for Sondheim. It's very tuneful. True. It's very accessible. Uh, it, it is Sondheim doing pop. He doesn't do pop often. It's one of his big things is that, you know, he always writes for the period he's in dramatically, right? Mm-hmm. And I think he made a comment in Finishing the Hat about, you know, this was his first time returning to the New York sound since Company. And even then it was a very different kind of New York sound as opposed to like, you know, the sort of like hip backerackiness of that score. Here you're I was about with- to say, Company was the last time he did pop. Yeah, exactly. And you can feel... I hate to say it, he writes great pop songs. He does, of course he does. And uh, part of the greatness is he, he does that, but then also what makes Merrily so great is you look at the construction, you look at da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and how that works throughout the show, all the places it shows up, the fact that the Hills of Tomorrow, if we're going to include that, the Hills of Tomorrow is the same as Good Thing Going, mm-hmm. and Who Wants to Live in New York, and it's kind of hinting that Frank really only has one idea. He's written one tune in his life. Yeah. It's the only song of his that we hear besides Bobby Jack and Jack. Uh-huh. It's Finn. It's some of his best character writing, honestly. I'm I'm never hard-pressed to disagree with people when they say that it's one of his best scores. You know? The craftsmanship is so high. Absolutely. So incredibly high. It's He has this thing in Merrily with a pre-reprise. He keeps doing pre-reprises. Yes. You have the reprise of old friends in the second scene and then old friends in the third scene. In that same third scene, you have a reprise of growing up, which then appears in the second act. Mm -hmm. You sort of meddle with it a little bit when you have sort of like the core, not a day goes by, and then a more reprise version of it in the second act. But even then, you think about then in turn how the seeds of that song would have informed the catastrophe that it is in its in its sort of first version. It's so weird talking about chronology with this fucking show. <laughs> it's a puzzle, and he likes big, he likes puzzles, and that's part of I think why he rose to the occasion so much, and part of why he was so harmed by the reception of the show. It was he's he was very open about the fact that this was like the most he's enjoyed doing a show in in like the most of his career, the most he's enjoyed just making it. Mm-hmm. and then to see that all come crashing down. And then he got slapped in the face. And, I mean, yeah. it's in Mary Rogers' book. His best friend from high school went on vacation rather than going to see Merrily We Roll Along. So the show had closed by the time the friend got back from vacation, and Sondheim cut him out of his life. Sondheim's life was very truly, very easily divided into pre-merrily post-merrily like, honestly so you could probably say pre-heart attack post-heart attack that would also make sense there was like the whole thing was you know I, i'm re-listening to that fossey biography and there's a whole thing in there about sort of how dark one becomes after mm-hmm. surviving a heart attack after you know yeah 
after approaching death like that. And mm-hmm. truthfully, I like th- that has to be a culmination of all those things. Just like a darker period in life, a huge catastrophic yeah. failure. He was. It's. He's been very open about the fact that Merrily Roll Along was the benchmark in which he was ready to quit musical theater full on. He was going to start writing mystery novels or start writing video games or start writing, you know, murder mystery movies. Well, because also he said the bitchiness got too much, didn't he? Yeah. He just, he, he and... couldn't stand the culture. That's exactly what it was. He just didn't want to be in that ecosystem. All this to say, this show completely alienated Stephen Sondheim because of the stumble that it had. And truthfully, it is not... To the, like, I think to the, he knew it was some of his best work. Yes. the There is material in there that was not worth the complete and total evisceration that it did receive. Mm-hmm. Same with the book. Same yeah. with the book. It is not... I think seeing this production and hearing Sondheim, he said somewhere else that George Firth the genius of him as a writer is he writes how everyone speaks exactly how everyone speaks Hmm. and when you look at who is in merrily and which characters are populating merrily he kind of exposed how vapid some of those people are and i think as a result they didn't like looking at it i think they recognized a lot of the lines sounded exactly like them and it was a whole thing of i perceive myself and i don't like it right and part of it i mean listening to the book seeing it this last Mm -hmm. time there are lines that are terrible in there i mean just terrible quality and i'm listening to it and i'm going you know that's an awful line but i can 100 percent hear someone saying that trying to be witty and they just aren't it's it's weird i also find that every now and then it's sort of like self-winking to its own chronology gets a bit much for me that's the problem with the book that is the clear problem i think so it it gets to a point where every single line is a reference to something that came earlier in the show and this is an easy segue into my opinion of Merrily walking into that theater is that it's way too depressing and I don't like watching it. I think you learn a lot about where someone is at in life by the way that they regard the depressingness or not depressingness of Merrily. I just every... By the end, you really... It's the sensation of you're in a boat and there's a hole in the boat and you're bailing out water and you're bailing out water and you know the show's good and you're trying to stay with it, but God, that water's coming in fast and every line's a reference to something and every line has to hurt and it's just like, quit slapping me in the face. Quit beating me up. I don't... This isn't enjoyable. And I mean, even the beginning, dreams don't die, so keep an eye on your dreams. That's a warning. That's a warning, because God, when dreams don't die, does it hurt? But it's also saying, you know, it's 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 a warning, but it's a good faith one. Keep an eye on your dreams. Don't abandon them. I don't think it's necessarily don't abandon them. It's about manage expectations in life, kid, because there's going to be some setbacks. This is our fundamental disagreement, by the way, audience. Be- yeah, because I see keep an eye on your dreams as don't lose sight rather than does it say don't lose sight keep an eye on your dreams which can mean 
Don't lose sight. It. Keep an eye on your dreams. And before you know where you are, there you are. Is the next line. Yes. Saying, you're not even going to see this shit happen to you. And those dreams aren't going to die. And it's going to hurt. And you're not even going to see that it's happening. I'm actually going to correct you. The, the opening title says, dreams don't die, so keep an eye on your dream. And before you know where you are, there you are. In the first transition that happens immediately between the first scene and the second scene, it's or before you know where you are, there you are. It's not and, it's or. Keep an eye on your dreams. Or before you know where you are, there you are. So it's saying that's what happens if you don't, in my eyes. I lean I more on that one. I admit that you're right. Sorry? Okay, well, you lean on the transition. I lean on when it's first heard. Fair. Starts in a dark place, that's for fucking sure. It starts in a dark place, and I think it remains in a dark place. I realized it actually watching the pro shot of the Maria Friedman production. I was watching it, and I had seen merrily some bootlegs, and I had seen it in person by the time I got to that pro shot. And I finished Act 1, and I was like, okay, I know what's coming in Act 2. I don't want to watch Act 2. And I waited an entire day in between. Wild. Because I was like, I don't want to see that happen to the characters. It gets to be every line is a reference to something else. And if you went back and read the Kaufman and Hart play, I'm sure you'd have some of the same issue. I get where you're coming from. You can see... One can see Merrily as an inevitability or as a cautionary tale, in my eyes. I approach it as a cautionary tale. And I approach it as if it's like coming from like a wistfulness of like, I was once here, now I'm here. Remember where you were when you were there, when you're here. And you know what? The production in New York Theatre Workshop, I don't think was either. And we'll get to that later, but wrapping up yeah. what we think of Merrily the show. It is the most optimistic musical that has ever hit the waves. It's full of heart okay, and glamour and zazz. Bastard now. And you're being a bastard person. And you walk out of that with a renewed sense of faith in society. Seriously? That's your answer there? I am consistently serious on this podcast. <sighs> I think Merrily We Roll Along is a wonderful musical. It means very much to me, and it's one of the musicals that kind of fills up my heart the most because of the love and passion that was put into the creation of this musical, the love and passion inherent in these characters, and the sort of urgency that the writing has in delivering this story sort of need to get this out the desire for it to be communicated for it to land with an audience it's something that i find very admirable and something that makes me very happy to champion it as it's coming back to the public eye i think merrily includes some genius level writing it has fascinating characters that are well drawn for the most part the plotting is a little heavy-handed and sometimes it can be too much to take in. So a production has to balance that. I do think it is exactly, at least considering all the revisions that have gone into this show, it is exactly the show they meant to write. 
Mm -hmm. And I do think it operates on a higher level than 99.999% of all musicals ever in existence. I agree with everything you just said, actually. Good. Now we aren't in a fight. Give me a sec. I'll I'll come up with something. You talk, I'll, I'll come up with something. Oh, you're trying to start a fight with me? Obviously. Little old me. There's something America's there. America's sweetheart. Sure. Anyhow, what do we jump to next? Are we to, are we going to jump into this production? Sure. We we hinted at um you said that merely is either this or that. What were those two things again? Uh, it's either a cautionary tale or it's an inevitability. And we both said the production at New York Theater Workshop, we don't think was either. It, yeah. I can't put my finger on it yet. I'm sure you have a take, but you're right. The production at New York Theater Workshop was a character study of Franklin Shepard. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I was not depressed and did not feel beat up at the end of the show is because Jonathan Groff is a magic, magic person. A terrific human being. Probably a great humanitarian. Daniel. And, you know, Daniel. all of that. and Not terrible to look Daniel. at. Daniel. And Daniel. when you... Yeah? Would you be saying this about Jonathan Groff if he were wearing sweatpants? Gray sweatpants, I might be saying oh even more. I walked into that one. <laughs> Why did you enter the Sopranos for a second? Oh my <laughs> God, Tony, is he dead? <laughs> it, Jonathan Groff is a magic, magic person. And when you cast him, all of a sudden, he is so likable, the entire show becomes that Frank is vindicated. Mm-hmm. You watch that production, and you watch that he doesn't do much wrong. He's pushed by the people around him into some terrible decisions, but he trusts those people, and they are pushing him into those decisions. He's dealt a really shitty hand after an initial burst of luck, and so it becomes how the fates of time are going against this person who had an initial burst of luck, and the luck ran out. Which is a reading of the show that I align with very much, actually. You know what? It fucking worked. Yeah, absolutely it does. It worked. It worked better than I've ever seen Merrily work. I was not depressed. I was like, this is a show I could see many times, rather than, honestly, most of the time I walk out of Merrily and I'm like, I got through that and I don't want to see it again for another five years. That was not how I felt. I'm like, excited to see this transfer. (laughs) Because of Groff, too, because this is the same, not the same Maria Friedman production, but largely the same production that Maria Friedman did in London with a bunch of British people whose names I totally know. Jenna Russell was in it. You did not. Jenna Russell was in it. Yes, Jenna Russell. I said Jenna Russell. Um, For sure you did. Josephina Gabrielle. Josephina Gabrielle was in it. And you did not get the same feeling from that production. I was very depressed after watching the pro shot. So it's fascinating. You make some casting choices and trust those actors and work with those actors. You're getting an entire different reading of the show. That, something that I didn't bring up before is that one of the largest problems with Merrily is that you start the show off trying to get an audience to care about terrible people. Mm-hmm. Because these people, as they start the show, are at the worst that they'll ever be. 
And then as they become good people, you're expected to have already started caring about these people enough to care when you see them as who they originally were, right? And yeah. at that point, mm-hmm. if you've already... As an audience member, I'm very much of the opinion that if you lose them, you lose them, you know? Yeah. I know as an audience member myself, if, if a show loses me, I'm kind of gone. Unless they, like, grab me by the fucking collar and drag me back in, which Marilyn doesn't really do. But the the positioning of extraordinarily likable, genuine, empathetic Jonathan Groff mm-hmm. kind of tethers the entire show back around this point. And I'm sort of going to... This is where I'm going to start my take on it. Sure. This production of Merrily We Roll Along felt to me like a total beating over the head of the point and the message and the intention of Merrily. This extraordinarily deliberate, slowed down to the syllable explanation of what this show was intended to be and what you're meant to take away from it and what the intention was. Mm-hmm. I don't begrudge that even a little bit. Mm-hmm. New York really fucking needs that from Merrily We Roll Along right now. And if that's yeah. what it takes to get this show to deliver and for people to, like, get this show, truthfully, fine by me. Well, because the show, every time it comes back, it's a different revision, it's a different revision, it's a different revision. Uh-huh. And this is what this it... is yet another, this version of Merrily has never been seen in New York. But no, no, no. It, it, there were really not many revisions in this production. They went back to, like, 1994, didn't they? Largely, yeah. There are, like, tiny brushes. It's 95% the exact same libretto. Like, 97, uh-huh. 98. And what this did, more than anything else, is it went back to... This is the point that Sondheim considered the show was done. We're mm-hmm. going to make a couple of small aesthetic changes, but... This is when he considered the show done. They made a case that Merrily doesn't need to be fixed. It is what it needs to be. It's exactly what it needs to be. It has its lapses. Most musicals have their lapses, but it's not about fixing Merrily. It's about you either like it or you don't. There's nothing wrong with this show. You might not like it, but there's nothing wrong with it. I I agree. I agree. And you know that like York Theater production was also like decently reviewed for what it was yeah it was regarded as like okay yeah you know what this is a show i can get behind this and now the word on merrily is like yeah this is a good show which for people in new york city to be saying that about merrily roll along fucking we won we won folks (laughs) like (laughs) i well and i still don't know if it's a good show but it is a great show yeah but people are like saying yeah you know what maybe people were wrong about this musical and you're like whoa you're saying this after and, he's croaked? And you know what? I, even thinking back about what we just said in the earlier s- section, I think we talked about problems. They aren't really problems. They're lapses. And every musical, the musical's a flawed art form. Just about every show has flaws. And Merrily is flawed like many shows. Some of the flaws are heavier than a lot of other shows. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't need to be fixed. No. That's a massive, massive leap. Especially coming after the last time Merrily was in New York, it was what, a 90 minute piece that Fiasco Theater did, and it had four or five actors that were also the musicians. And it no, they weren't the, the musicians. It was, it, was, it was like six okay. performers who cobbled together a script 
from three different drafts of Merrily plus the original play. It had never been more changed than it was in that moment. And it was poorly received. Yes, which dismayed Sondheim. So it's interesting. They go back to an early version, <laughs> remove some of the revisions, and they make a case. Here's the show. Here's the show. The show has a lot of thought. The show has a lot of intention behind it. You like it or you don't, but that's not our problem. We're doing the show. It comes down to the performances, I think. It really did. And this is where Maria Friedman really shines as a director. She seems to be a fantastic director of actors. Mm -hmm. She also, it's interesting her perspective personally, because she was part of the premier UK production of Merrily Roll Along in like 92, yep. 93, which was the version immediately before the York Theatre version that is now like the definitive version of the of the show so like having been in the show previously i think gives a very fascinating sort of perspective then into directing that show into creating those things you know i'm always mm. interested in people who have been in shows then producing their takes on those shows yeah. right because you get a very mm -hmm. interesting sort of internal perspective um yeah and you know that production really does give Mary a lot of the do that she is straight up lacking in like almost every other production of Merrily that I know of. There's this one moment, I don't know if you picked it up, at the very end of the first act, the very end of Now You Know. Yeah. All the characters rush forward. Right, 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 bum ba da 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 Now you know. Just before that last hit of music, Mary rushes to the front of the stage with everyone, screams, I love you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed. Fucking extraordinary. And that was true in the British. Although yes, that was also there, yes. I didn't care for the British one as much because, again, casting changes and attitudes of Frank. You have a different cast. Maria Friedman worked with the cast, and so the production has a very different feel. And you know how we said one of the lapses in the production, everything is a callback. Uh -huh. They didn't feel as heavy handed when you're following Frank. So you're following this one character who's really dominating the show. But since it wasn't about Frank is a monster and Frank constantly makes bad decisions, each of the callbacks are then not this is an opportunity where Frank is going to become a monster. You see, this is where Frank is pushed into this decision. Mm -hmm. So it isn't as heavy by the end. Yeah, I agree. It's you, you see very deliberately the strings that are pulled to get Frank mm -hmm. from one thing. You see to extent, the extent to which he's like a people pleaser. And how much he wants to help and how much he wants to be a part of it. And the love that he has for this environment he's in. Like, the stars in his eyes. And how he's manipulated for those. Mm -hmm. The way that people just kind of take advantage of that. The way that people take advantage of that happiness. The way that, you know, Gussie does. The way that the Blob does. The way that Joe does. Even to tiny extents, the way that Beth does. And the way that his friends do. Mm-hmm. It's interesting seeing all those moving pieces, how people push him into the life that he ends up in. People push him and then blame him for having been pushed. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, Mary and Charlie both have their own problems, but they both sort of inadvertently 
end up pushing Frank in these tiny, minute ways and then blame him for casting them out. When in reality, Mm -hmm. they had these lapses of judgment. They had these stumbles that resulted in them losing the plot. Yeah. What were some parts of the production that you specifically loved? The last scene of the first act. Fucking Shakespearean drama. Oh, the entire scene. The entire scene. Not a day goes by through to now you know. That entire Mm -hmm. scene. Acting on levels that floored me. Yes, and we will get to the performances, but yes, Yes. that did feel Shakespearean. I... That entire scene was... uh, Yes, this is absolutely every bit as good as Hamlet. I wept. Uh Uh-huh. I wept. I had to leave the theater at intermission. I had to take a walk because of how fucking intense that last scene was for me. But you know when it landed... The entire scene built up, built up, built up. Yeah. And it kept building up, kept building up. And you didn't really get to it until Lindsay Mendez finished her verse of Now You Know. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, holy fuck, what have I experienced this last 10 minutes? How did that build up so much? Yeah. And she very much is this explosion. Now you know being the explosion of energy and tension that's been building and building and building. And the way that she's able to just point all of that and let it explode. That scene, I've always remarked that scene as being the last moment of Franklin Shepard's life. That scene is is the last time that we see Franklin Shepard as we know him. Immediately after that scene, he goes on this trip, and he comes back as Franklin Shepard, Inc. Mm. That's how I delineate those things, right? Because he has this intense, insane, traumatic experience where all of the things that he loves are, like, leaving him. And he's in this state of rejection and humiliation, and he's on the floor weeping, and he's he's completely— and. But you know what? Of, what do they do? They don't say, we're here for you. Let's go into therapy. Let's work on everything. No, Let's help they you. say, no, get the fuck step out. Away. Just they step say, away get from away. everything. Just Lose get away yourself. and step away from this. Lose yourself and you'll find yourself better. And Frank, literally, the first thing he sings in, now you know, right, you got to let go. Got to do it from scratch. He's completely, he's like, yeah, you know what? Fuck it. Leave it all beside. Jean Valjean is nothing now. He completely, oh, he, he goes right. to that No, boat. you did not. <laughs> You're retaking that. Retake that. Retake that. Absolutely not. It's staying in. Retake that. Retake that. It's staying in. It's staying in. He gets onto that boat and he goes, you know what? I'm stepping away. I'm stepping away from everything. I am completely shutting all of that off. And he gets onto the boat and he receives this new validation, this new source of happiness, this new source of approval. All the yes men in the world, all the boozy wants, all the most expensive things, all of these wonderful places. He goes, well, this is happiness. This is where I get validation. This is what I've been looking for. What the fuck do I need all that for? Mm -hmm. I'll stay here where I'm comfortable. And the rest of his life becomes comfortable, and he no longer takes risks, and he no longer does the thing that excites him, and he no longer fights for the thing that he wants to pursue. He just lives in comfort, because the extremes of that traumatic experience that we see at the end of the first act, that explosion of horrible things, just completely turns him off, and he's gone forever. And the way that they illustrated that in this production, I thought was pitch fucking perfect. That's Mm -hmm. exactly what 
he needed for the audience to actually... And you know what that does? That makes the audience understand, okay, yeah, you know what? I'm now sitting here at intermission thinking about I know exactly why this happened to him, and now I'm going yeah. to see what Franklin Shepard was. Uh-huh. Exactly. Pitch fucking perfect. Just, it's those kinds of character dynamics, and it's working every second of this show. And the thing is... When you cast a show, you're going to cast some good people. You're going to fill some of the parts, let's be honest there. Sure. When the character dynamics are that clear throughout Mm -hmm. the entire show for every person on stage. Every person. That's not the actors. I mean, that's a lot of the actors, but the fact that it's that investigated, that's the director. Because you can have a million actors doing great work, and if they are doing it in the ether and they never get on the same page it's not going to work the person they were all that gets on the them same mm-hmm. they all had very specific trajectories throughout the entire show and maria friedman is there watching over them editing them and knowing what the audience is giving that's not necessarily something the actor needs to know the actor needs to know what their character is doing. They have to have a tunnel vision of the show. There has to be someone out here making sure everything is congealing, making sure that um, the entire arc of the show is clear. And getting the actors to do their work, see the show from their perspective, but making it clear for us. And mm-hmm. that was done to some of the highest levels I've ever seen. Mm-hmm especially when you consider how confusing this show can be. It, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary production that cared so much about the material that it has, cared so much about getting it right, and more than anything was just an extraordinarily effective demonstration of the story. You know what the biggest change in the show was? was that? There's a line in that Frank... That says, you know what's great about this? It was a movie movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's in like the last verse of the thing. And they're all like, uh, Frank made a star. Frank really understands commercial. I love a movie movie. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, Harry Styles comes out from the wings and goes, you can go to the theater. And you can... You don't have to stay here. You can go down the street and see a movie, movie. And you're happy. And you're happy, Harry. (laughs) Daniel Radcliffe's like, don't bring me into this. (laughs) I couldn't believe. Well, and again, something a little too close for comfort. Everyone's making fun of Harry Styles for saying movie, movie. And sure enough... He's repeating a phrase he's heard multiple people use, and they're repeating a phrase they've heard multiple people use and barely <laughs> we roll along. I that something interesting is, you know, this production is a decade old, and this is like the third time it's ever been done. They did it Menier that then transferred to the West End, and then in like twenty seventeen, they brought the two British leads over to somewhere in america and did it like regionally i think boston it was, in, like, Ill- was it boston boston I it was it. huntington huntington theater yeah, yeah. It was huntington. They, they did it at boston with the two british leads and like eden espinosa and then sort of mounted it there and then this is like the third iteration it's interesting seeing this production happen 
you know, over the course of an entire decade, just kind of like sporadically, rather than like a constant reworking, a constant revisiting, just like coming back to it every now and then, you know? Mm-hmm. If you look at that, I guess I'll sort of cap off this section of it here, because I feel like we're sort of winding down to a close. Seeing that pro shot from a decade ago and seeing it here now, the amount of development that has happened just in the direction of the show is remarkable. It's -hmm. the same production. They're performing on the same set. They're doing essentially identical blocking, identical choreography, very much the same costumes, same design, same lighting design, same, like, you know, all this stuff, same arrangements. But the difference in direction, the difference in the way that the performances are constructed absolutely dazzles me. It feels like there's been such a growth from the perspective of this show and the depth with the to which the performers inhabit these characters was astounding to me. I truly, I, 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 I was deeply impressed with this production, blatancy and all. One note as they transfer. One thing that really got under me and made me angry. Bring back the fucking overture. Please. It's one of the great overtures of all time. I want the full overture. They're doing like a 32 bar cut of the overture. It's not enough. I want the full thing. Bring it back. They've cut it about in half. They cut the entire good thing going section from the from the overture. And the overture it, as we know it today it is already truncated from the original Broadway production. I want the original original. I don't care if the song isn't was cut from the show and isn't even there anymore. I want the original overture. Bring back the original overture. And I get when you don't have the full orchestration, you're trying to cut it down because you don't want people just focusing on how sparse everything is. But, you know, certain Broadway shows are doing full overtures and they're using a cut 14-piece band you hypothetically are going to be somewhere in the same capacity, same vicinity. Do the full overture. With that, do you want to get on to these performances? Sure. All right, why don't we start this cast section with Crystal Joy Brown as Gussie? Sure. Uh, what'd you make of her? She was fine. I thought she was the weak link in the cast. I thought perhaps that, too. I thought it was interesting that she was playing Gussie with so much earnest. Mm-hmm. You know? That she was playing, like, like seemed as though... Like, I, I couldn't tell whether or not she was trying to make her Gussie extraordinarily fake or extraordinarily heartfelt. But it's like she had these moments of, like, sincere sort of sentimentality or like she seemed to be really emotionally affected by something but at the same time you're like where's this coming from and not in like a oh yeah you're definitely putting this on way and just like a like why this decision now way she was the one person where i felt like we never got to the core of the character yeah because Gussie, it's this hard exterior, and it makes sense that it's a hard exterior, but you crack the exterior and there's a center. 
and I was just missing the center. We kind of started getting there with uh, the hostages sequence. I feel like I finally started to see who she was, but it wasn't there enough, and there weren't enough um, flashes of it earlier in the show. And her Gussie persona was very put on, and it seemed intentionally put on, which is fine, but what happens when the exterior is off? And that was what was missing. Yeah. Perhaps. I I had trouble putting my finger on it in general. It just felt like a very... It, it felt like a rather disconnected performance from the rest of the ensemble altogether. Yeah. And, you know, I think if you're going to ebb your way into Franklin Shepard's life that much, you sort of think that Gussie would learn to, like, play him like a fiddle, right? Whereas mm-hmm. she sort of seemed like she was just around. It wasn't a bad performance. I just didn't click with the with her take on the character, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it was a bad performance. It I don't think she went as deep as the rest of the cast did. That's possible. Maybe Maria didn't go as deep with her. I can give that benefit of the doubt perhaps. Mm-hmm. Okay, gosh. And now I guess we're moving on to Katie Rose Clark. Katie Rose Clark. We never hyperbolize on the podcast. Never. Never. I th- she's she's got the Tony, I think. She wants it. I think she, I think there's a good fucking shot at the Tony. What impressed me with her and I was not expecting this at all in the slightest bit. Of course she was in The Light in the Piazza pro shot and I actually saw her in Wicked. But what I was not expecting she aged the best out of the whole group. I don't even know. I think it's a posture thing. But she most convincingly backwards aged out of anyone that was there. Mm-hmm. Performers either can do the first act and not the second or can do the second act and not the first. Young people can do the second act. Old people can do the first act. That's the generally perceived notion of Marilee. She did both. Yeah. She did both the best out of anyone. And she kind of, I guess material wise has it easiest because she pops in at the very end of the first act and so she has the least to do in terms of being like you know a whole separate character as an adult but Mm -hmm. even from then the jump from not a day goes by to like opening doors is drastic and that was executed without a flaw Mm -hmm. and then you know her not a day goes by this is a loaded sentence that i don't take lightly when we have recordings akin to those of Bernadette Peters performing this song. I do think that her Not A Day Goes By is probably my favorite ever. It's high up there. Yeah. Like, so she gets in the middle of the song, and for some reason, uh, I, I don't know, she trips or something, and she goes down on the ground, and it's in an anger. And I was just like, oh, fuck, we're going there. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. that's what it started becoming Shakespearean. <laughs> she set yes, that off. Yeah. She did. And propelled the entire rest of the scene as a result. Yep. She was just terrific. I did not... Gonna be honest, I didn't think she had that in her. I mean, like, when was the last time we really saw her since Piazza? Wicked. Did she do Wicked before or after? After. After. So, since she, Wicked. She was, like, directly... I think she left college a semester early to do Piazza. Good for her. So that's Kate Rose Clark. I think next we have... Someone who really has a terrific name 
someone who, who signifies great integrity and um and and intelligence and stick-to-itiveness. My God, Daniel. Nobleness. Yes, Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, fucking hell. You've done that exact same bit. Never. Never in my life. You have done Joshua Harmon. Oh, see, there's a talented man. There's a gifted man. There's a man that you trust. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> Danny Raddy. Uh, this is my first Daniel time ever seeing him do a Radcliffe. musical. Uh, is it my first time seeing him do a musical? Did you ever watch a video of his How to Succeed? I've seen clips. There's uh, also that video of him sluttily performing She'll Be Coming Round the Mountain. That is, that is a video most pleasing to me. For sure. In my career. Uh, I think of that video very fondly. Makes sense. <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe is no songstress, but he executed this part pretty fucking fantastically okay let's talk about the voice since he started with he's no songstress sure he has the voice necessary to get through the role absolutely that's not a problem and there's actually i mean not just range he has the range and he has the depth of voice it's there's nothing wrong with the voice the issue is he's not a musical person yeah you either have great innate musical talent or you don't and you either got it or you ain't. He has the voice. He can sing. He knows acting wise what he's supposed to do. But as far as shaping a musical phrase, it's not something that he's ever considered. Even still, the voice itself is like a letdown. No, I no, mean, it isn't. truthfully, one of the biggest fears of my entire thing was what fucking key they were going to put Franklin Shepard Inc. in. And he uses the original. He uses the original key. Yeah. He uses the original key. There are some people who do it like a half step down, and that's it, it's licensed as a as a half step down, and that's miserable to me. Mm-hmm. I have I can go on a whole tangent. Sondheim has said that he doesn't compose in a specific key when he writes a song, and that throws me off a fucking loop, and I'm not going to talk about it right now because I have too many thoughts about it. Anyhow, Daniel Radcliffe does get through the score completely. Mm-hmm. He survives it. He doesn't he doesn't soar or anything, but there he never falls short of the score. And on top of that, he fucking fits the character like a glove. I have a question. I would love to hear it, Daniel. Did you pick up on this? He got to his Franklin Shepherd Inc. thing, and he was very twitchy and he was very frenetic. And what I was seeing was someone who did a line of cocaine before they walked into the TV studio. I see where you got the impulses. I don't think that that I didn't pick I didn't get that. I didn't come to that. If completely. that's what he's going for, it's a brilliant choice and it completely works and it's being communicated. I I won't begrudge you taking that away from it. I just that wasn't the conclusion I came to. He gives a great performance. Mhm. He's touching. He's touching. And to move on from him, we have the two big heavy hitters. We have Tony Winner. Lindsay Mendez is Mary. Yes. <sighs> I am going to allege the greatest Mary of all time. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, what a stunning shake you by the shoulders dominance of a performance. Mm-hmm. I where do you even start? 
it was phenomenally felt, phenomenally acted, phenomenally sung. Her dynamics with the company were fucking fantastic. She understood the tone, not just of the show, but of the production immensely. Mm -hmm. And she was the perfect foil for every character she interacted with. Mm -hmm. Without ever seeming even the least bit put on. No, not at all put on. You can debate, I think, I think it's probably a contest between two, maybe three performers as to who's the best performance on that stage. It is not a debate that she is by far the most grounded, real, this is a full-ass human in front of me performance in this entire mm. company. It was stunning the amount of reality she brought to this show. I was astounded. Let's talk about everything that she does. She's able to be play an alcoholic and a likable alcoholic because there's two kinds of alcoholics. There's kind of the likable alcoholic and you don't realize they have a problem until they start stumbling. And then you have the pathetic alcoholic and the pathetic alcoholic is what a lot of people play when they play Mary. And it's just not enjoyable to sit with mm-hmm. and not that you have to be enjoyable to sit with. But you get that there's, you see the person that Mary was, and you get that she's having fun. So you don't immediately reject her as someone who's just mean. She's having fun, and then she stumbles, and oh, I think mm -hmm. she has a problem. We talked about Now You Know, and it really is, she's able to bring up this intensity and point it in a specific direction. Which, that's a specific skill, to be able to point your talent somewhere mm -hmm. rather than just have it be this messy thing that splats across the room. And it's volcanic when she finishes that song. By the end, I mean, she's innocent and just breaking your heart. She's terrific. It's she's a, terrific. It's, That's it's, another it's, one. She'll have to be heavily in contention for a Tony. I also think that it's a walk to the stage for her, potentially. There, There is some... There's some hot competition, so I wouldn't make any declarations, but like, Well, fuck. it's not happening until the 2024 Tony Awards. Oh, right. That's a good point. Oh, yeah. right. They're in their own cat. Ooh. Ooh, juicy. So we yeah, have the basis of comparison, you're saying there's a lot of eh? competition. You're saying there's a lot of competition. <laughs> I'm like, what else has said that it's coming in? I mean, we've heard Cabaret's probably coming in, but... <laughs> no, that's a good point, because you know what? I feel like at least for three out of the four categories here depending on where they put katie rose clark three of the four categories i feel like there's like a base to meet mm -hmm. yeah right because you're mm -hmm. like okay well is this or is this not better than the merrily performance like yeah that's the metric yeah. they literally have set the field and if we may talk about that last person setting the field Jonathan okay Goff. so you know when you were in school and they, there were all these supplies and there used to be a circle thingy that had all of the cities of the world on it. Yeah? A, a globe? And it was blue. Oh, was Jesus fucking Christ! If you took the globe off of the metal piece, <laughs> and you decided to cut that globe straight down the middle, and you decided to take the two halves of the globe and put it in the back of your pants... What Daniel is, is trying what to get Goff's at. That is what ass looked like. And Daniel is trying God, to get at the fact. God, it was something to look at. Oh my God, what a sight. Jonathan Groff happens to have a completely spherical ass in his costume oh. in Merrily We Roll Along. The vapors. 
The vapors. It gave me. Oh, the I don't want to know about vapors coming from his ass. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, beautiful, beautiful work, beautiful work there. Uh, there was a performance too. So Katie Rose Clark falls down during uh, not a day goes by, and then later on he's being. Uh, confronted by something I, I think it's part of a book scene and during the book scene after that song he falls down to the ground and he he's like screaming and crying and spitting on everybody and falling to the ground and you just sat there and you said he's on the ground looking for the tony that's what he's doing down there <laughs> there's a tony down there he's picking it up once he gets up that'll be him at the podium my God, he's never been better in his career. He has never been better in his career. And it's not just the ass, but the ass does help. Um, <laughs> he's never been better in his career. It's so well acted. And again, when we talked about the reason the production isn't depressing and that it's a character study, it's a character study of him. He is the entire production. Not the entire production, but he is the reason for this production. He is the casting choice that sets everything ablaze. Best Frank ever. Best Frank ever. Yes. Give yes, him the that Tony. One, that one's That's the one. In my eyes. Yeah. Like, I could see Lindsay Mendez losing it. I could see Katie Rose Clark possibly losing it. If they don't give Jonathan Groff the Tony Award, there must be a recount. I think there was some voter fraud. Merrily We Roll Along lives and dies by its Franklin Shepard. Yes. If it lives at all, if it lives at all, it lives from its Franklin Shepard. It still it, can die with a great Franklin Shepard. Jim Walton was a great Franklin Shepard, but uh -huh. it it really, it is the centerpiece. If you don't have a good Franklin Shepard, that's a large part of why I've heard like the Encores production doesn't land the way it potentially could have, because that Frank just wasn't as up to snuff as could have been. Jonathan Groff is absolutely without certain the best person to have ever played this part. It's not a debate. I didn't know he had that in him. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know Katie Rose Clark had that in her. I didn't know, I really didn't know he had that in him. And y y you think of him, and he's always good in the shows he's done. But, you know, um, looking realistically, he's good. And there are also ten other men that could do what he does. He goes out there and merrily we roll along. No one can do what he does on that stage. No one. No. And no one has. It's astounding just astounding i don't care if he's showing up 30 seconds after the show started and he's walking on stage fantastic oh it was the perfect performance of that character for this mm -hmm. production at the very least perfect perfect encapsulation of everything this production stands for i think merrily has never been better and a lot of that is on him it's a stunning company all around it really uh, is it really really, is. really tight ensemble with pretty much unanimously stellar leading performances. Mm -hmm. Overall, if we're going to rate this production. Oh, it's an A+. I think it is. A, I think this is an A-plus production of Merrily Roll Along. You know, it, I wonder 20 years from now, We'll look back and say the da 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 hang a plaque. Fucking hell. Uh, <laughs> whatever that lyric is, I clearly didn't remember it. 20 years from now, looking back, are we going to think 
that revival of company that we had wow that was it because i think 20 years from now we'll look it back at this merrily and say my god it's never been better i'll i'll say this i heard from a friend of mine who sort of is a bit privy to the conversations that was happening about this production that the sondheim estate is was holding a lot to this production of merrily what I've heard is that it's kind of being regarded as the comeback story of Merrily Roll Along. That this production is the one that they think people are going to remember. This is the one that this show will be known for. This is the one that's going to cement the like vision of this show. This is Merrily's legacy venture. This is They're trying to make this be the iteration, right? And I... I I they I they I think they have it. You think about the company revival. You think about this, the Into the Woods revival. A lot of people thought was a perfect revival. Are we in a new golden age of Sondheim performances? I think so. I think it's very likely. Like it's shocking. Um, I mean, not shocking, but we've had a lot of Sondheim revivals, and are they all going to stay at this level? Is this a golden age? Are, are they going to get worse? Are they going to get better? Like, I I guess I'm optimistic, ha ha ha, about the future. It's a, it's a brilliant interpretation of this show. Sondheim, just in general, has not been in better hands in the, in the past little while than it seems to be right now in the greater Broadway makeup. It's cementing the legacy of Merrily, and it is cementing his legacy. Yeah. And that Assassins, we didn't talk about that at all. Oh well, my god, yeah, that There were such yes. good performances in the Off-Broadway Assassins. It, uh, that was another, like, the amount of delicacy and care and reverence and detail that went into those performances. May I think, if say what you will about the productions, I feel like we're in a golden age of Sondheim performances. I think so. In I think each of really these recent, so. In each of these recent productions, you have been, you have had people saying... This person, at the very least, top three ever. Mm-hmm. The company, Into the Woods, Assassins, Merrily Roll Along, true of all four of these productions. That anyone can whistle at Carnegie Hall, I don't know about. But anyway, it's... We'll have to see what's coming. I'm looking forward. I'm well, so excited to see this. Actually, I think I spoke too soon because what's right. immediately Sweeney's coming... Right, Sweeney's about to... Hmm. Listen... Ruthie might be great. Everyone stumbles. Fumbles. Bumbles. Along. Plumbles. Yeah. Folks, thank you for joining us through our journey through Merrily We Roll Along. This this wraps up our little uh, series of episodes about our time in New York. We are going back to our sort of regular old programming from now on. And, you know, we've been, we've been sort of touching upon of like, uh, we, we, we've been spending a lot of time in like the sort of current theatrical landscape, spending a lot of time sort of like in the theater that's coming out right now. And I think I speak for the both of us. Huh? Enough! We are going back. We are going way, way back. I was going to say, I think we just stay in that pocket because we're already... No, no, No? we are going to do a work that just entered the public domain so I can sing as much of the score as I want to. The public domain. 
That's I'm not talking about the public theater. How, how fucking back? What? How back are we going? We're going to do Showboat. So I can sing all of the what score the that fuck? I want to. Daniel, I come on. I used to dream that I could discover a perfect Showboat? Someday. Daniel, what? I knew I recognize him if ever he came Are around you s- my way. Daniel, f- real shit. Look, it's the first musical to enter the public domain that is in some way dramatic sounding enough that it is feasible to be revived and we should discuss the implications there and we should discuss what the show was how it sits now does it need to be revived would you revise it now that you can do whatever the fuck you want to do with it what does it mean to have a musical enter the public domain fuck that's an interesting conversation yeah thank you fine fine but after that He's Be more just chill. my build. No. An ordinary <laughs> guy. See you next week. make believe. I love him. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critics Circle. Join us next week when we discuss Showboat. Specifically, the San Francisco Opera Pro Shot from 2014. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute the recordings discussed herein.